Welcome to the AHS Matrix Podcast, a podcast written and produced by Athens High School students. I'm Sarah Braun with another episode of Underground Sound, and I'll be exploring what makes a sound iconic using the music of one of the most iconic bands, the Beatles. The Beatles' sound is recognizable and has rarely been copied. Few bands have captured their sound because it is so unique. I want to explore that sound by examining its traits as well as looking at its influence on music as a whole. To identify the sounds that make the Beatles iconic, I will be looking at the music of someone who has copied them the best. Musician and actor Neil Innes wrote the music for The Ruddles. The Ruddles All You Need Is Cash came out in 1976. It was a mockumentary that chronicled the rise and fall of the band The Ruddles. It was a spoof off of The Beatles and mocked Beatlemania. The Ruddles took almost every major moment in the Beatles' history and created an alternative narrative filled with comedic mishaps. The Ruddles most notably gave us two compilation albums of songs that, if not listened to closely, could easily be mistaken for Beatles songs that never made it onto the airwaves. Neil Innes copied the sound of the Beatles, making songs that combined all of the elements of the Beatles' music. These songs were not played by John, Paul, George, and Ringo, but by Dirk, Nasty, Stig, and Barry. The Beatles took famed adventures on their magical mystery tour. However, the Ruddles took a tragical history tour. The Ruddles were not only known for their satire, but specifically Neil Innes' ability to mock the Beatles' sound, a sound that shaped musical history. I wanted to explore this sound, so I talked to Andre Grabu, rock history professor at Ohio University and fellow Ruddles fan. So could you please introduce yourself? Ooh, okay, introduce myself. My name is Andre Gribu. I have a kind of a, a really eclectic interest in music, um, which you know about. Um, and it's one of those things that, that comes about when you're uh, really super young, and so uh, you start getting involved in music, and it's not dissimilar to, to your involvement, and, except that I really got in, interested in playing. That was sort of the, the kind of um, uh, focal point. But um, I played piano when I was really young, and then, um, uh, you know, four or five, and then I got, I, I didn't really want to continue because I studied piano with a really crazy lady up the street, and it was not fun. And, um, and then I thought it would be kind of cool to play drums. So I, and we moved to another town, and I, I convinced my parents to, to get a, a small beginnings of a drum set. So then I played drums in rock bands when I was in seventh grade and eighth grade, and then some kid brought a, uh, uh, an organ to the rehearsal and some other kid had shown me a blues progression on the, on the piano and, I, and the kid that brought the organ really couldn't play it very well and I started playing it a little bit and I thought, hmm, this is interesting. So then I, I got back into playing piano. So, um, and at that point we ended up moving yet again and I was playing piano in, in various uh, uh, sensitive uh, um, uh, confessional singer-songwriter bands because this is right around the era of uh, Elton John coming out and Joni Mitchell Blue and all of that and James Taylor so when I was in high school and then uh, my music uh, teacher in high school said you should go to music school and I thought that's a weird idea so, um, uh, so I applied to one music school and I went to music school though my friends is then I went on and I did graduate school work at Juilliard and piano performance and my, my friends, a lot of my friends there didn't bother. They really, I remember somebody going, do you really think Beatles, do you really think that's the music? I mean, I literally got that kind of, this is in the 80s too. It's like, <laughs> it's not, we're not talking about 1927, you know, so it was pretty strange. Um, but, you know, and then composing for his theater and dance and all that stuff um, got me thinking about uh, just all these different kinds and styles of music. So when I had the opportunity to teach uh, history of rock, I was like, yeah, let's do that. So there we have it. That's a little bit of my background. Yeah, thank you. So today we're talking about the like the sound of the Beatles. So can you talk a little bit about what makes the Beatles sound so iconic? That's a really, really, really good question and, and really sort of a hard one to answer because I think the thing is that um, the, 
their impact is so um, extraordinary. When you and I were talking the other day, I, I realized I really wanted to share with you um, the, what Robert Christgau, uh, who was one of the first rock critics, had written. And he said that rock music is uh, that music that it derives primarily from the energy and the influence of the Beatles. So what ends up happening is that all of all of rock music, you know, post 1963, 1964, eventually comes back to the Beatles. And and invariably, when I sort of say that in class, everybody's like, "Well, like that's that's not a thing." I mean, how could you relate disco to the Beatles? It's really super easy. Um, so in a lot of ways, what ends up happening is that rock and roll, um, in, 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 which comes out of sort of the, the R rhythm and blues that gets picked up by uh, the rockabilly guys, and specifically by Elvis, um, who's this sort of iconic and turning figure in all of this, which is basically the idea of, 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 of white people sort of incorporating black music into the mainstream. Um, so it's a really, really interesting um, history of uh, social um, phenomenon and particularly race relations in the United States. But that's a whole other thing. We could, we'll, if we go down that road, we'll be there for a long time. So let's go back to the Beatles. I think what, what makes their sound so interesting is that they uh, were able to um, be these extraordinary sponges. They could take all these different influences and somehow through their unique sort of chemistry they would take them and then they would somehow turn that into an original sound which is really hard to do so if you take a a, a sort of doo-wop you know uh, ooh la 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 thing which we've sort of were talking about somehow they'll take that but then they'll combine it with the harmonies that you would get from uh, Everly Brothers, incredibly influential, sort of coming out of the, the country sound, these really tight uh, thirds that are happening. But they'll take those and they'll incorporate that while at the same time doing sort of a twangy guitar thing while at the same time thinking, well, wait a second, we, we, can, we can change the sound um, in the studio. So the other thing about the Beatles is that they're the first group that, that first of all, they're a collaborative. And while we think about you know bands getting together and being groups that are all about the sort of collaboration, they were they were the first to really do that. They were really the first. I mean, they they built on Buddy Holly's idea of two guitars, bass, and drums. But Buddy Holly was doing all the all the writing. And in this case, what you've got is McCartney and Lennon, but with all the suggestions from the other people. And then, of course, George Martin, who was their producer, who recognized that these these two in particular were so incredibly unusual. And then Harrison jumps in on that as well, because he's got this incredibly unique approach to playing guitar. And while we've sort of uh, uh, dismissed Ringo Starr, it's really one shouldn't, because you, if you imagine putting another drummer in there, it's really, it doesn't work. And so somehow that sort of coherent sound of all of them combined with their approach to being in the studio. Um, I had the, the, the good fortune of becoming friends with, um, with Ken Scott, who was their, uh, one of the major engineers at Abbey Road. And he was the one that engineered uh, uh, um, all of the White Album. His first job as full engineer was uh, recording um, uh, I Am the Walrus, which cracked me up. So I said to him, was like, how was that? He goes, it was insane. But he talks about how, you know, he, he, they would be in the studio starting at midnight. And he, since Ken was young, they would call him and say, well, do you, the Beatles are in the studio. You know, like, you want, you, we, need, we need somebody to come in. And he was the guy that would do that. And he said they would experiment with everything. They'd say, well, let's record it in this room. Well, let me, what does it sound like if I lie on, Leonard would say, what does it sound like if I lie on the floor? and you swing the microphone over my, over my face while I sing this. And so it was the idea of using the studio as an experimental, as an instrument in and of itself. So all these combinations of things really start to create this really unique sound, aside from the fact that they have really unusual voices. Um, and, but I w the thing is that every time they did something, they would, they would you know, cleverly steal from the original, but then they would turn it into their own. So that it wasn't exactly like when you listen to, and one of the examples I wanted to show you was, was if you listen to, um, or like Twist and Shout, right? So mm -hmm. if you listen to the Isley Brothers, you go, okay, this is great, but they took that rhythm and blues thing and somehow turned it into an early rock and roll feel to it with a slight element of, of, uh, of rockabilly. But on the other hand, when you listen to it really carefully, you listen to Lennon's vocals in Twist and Shout. One of the things about that is, um, this incredible hoarse sound that, that's happening with the way Lennon sings, and yet it gives us an incredible 
uh, urgency and vibrancy to it. The great story is that Lennon had blown out his voice recording this, and he didn't have anything left. And they said, well, let's do one more. So he's literally screaming the, the lyrics and the tune because he's, he's shredded his vocal cords, but it comes out un, at this incredible urgency. So they kept that. And then try to duplicate that sound. You're not going to be able to duplicate that sound because what you're listening to is somebody who is who is screaming with a shredded vocal cords with this. But and and once you know, you you can really hear it. I mean, it's it's actually kind oh, of yeah. painful, but it it's, it has this unbelievable sound, and it's really different from the smooth sound that you get from say the Isley Brothers original. Mm-hmm. So they'll take a cover, but then somehow they'll make it you know sound incredibly uh, 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 original in, in their own way. The thing about the Ruddles, because we're going to get to that eventually, what I loved about one of the tunes was this tune called Number One, where Neil Innes, who's the guy that, that writes the tunes for the Ruddles, had, it's, it's really genius because what he does is he takes the concept of cover tune, basically, okay, we're going to do somebody else's song, but what we're going to do is uh, we're going to make that, a, we're gonna, I'm going to write an original that's going to sound like the Beatles doing a cover of another song. So somehow I've got to incorporate all those different elements, and he he actually managed to do that with that tune number one. Okay, so we listen to the beginning of number one. So that opening guitar lick, all mm-hmm. right. So that's a sort of a, it's a moment in musical history frozen, right? So what we've got is a sort of this early '60s, early Beatles sound. There's an element of that in the original Twist and Shout by the Isley Brothers. So if we listen to right, so if we listen to that. But even more than that is the 1959 hit by uh, Richie Valens, his big hit, which is La Bamba. So La Bamba, the sound of La Bamba becomes part of the musical vocabulary of rock and roll. Like, it's, it's there. And so mm-hmm. that's what's sort of interesting about rock and roll. Once somebody does something, it just becomes this thing. The Beatles sort of, they, they solidify that. And, and it becomes everything that happens previous to the Beatles. They sort of, they take it in, and then they change the direction of it. If you listen to the beginning of La Bamba... Now, now we've changed it, but that's literally the same key. It's the same guitar lick. It's a little bit changed, right? And so what then, so what he's done is he takes a mashup of the beginning of La Bamba and then that great thing that starts to happen when we listen to the Isley Brothers twist and shout. So the, the structure of the vocals, right, is the lead singer singing and you've got this call and response thing, which is really coming out of rhythm and blues. Okay, because mm-hmm. okay, this is straight ahead rhythm and blues tune. The Beatles figure that out and they make it sound exactly right. Well, shake it up, baby, now Shake it up, baby Twist and shout Twist and shout So you can hear Lennon's voice just completely destroyed. Oh, yeah. But when you listen to the background vocals, they're doing the same thing that the Isley Brothers are doing. There's sort of that call and response, but they're doing it in harmonies that are much more related to country Everly Brothers. So now what they've done is taken rhythm and blues stuff and country stuff and made it, combined it in some very peculiar way with their own idiosyncratic vocal technique of a shredded voice it's and they're just good players too so that's yeah. just like one start but i but what neil innes does is he goes wait let me go to la bamba and, and like rip off that opening which is kind of like twist and shout and then just play around with that idea yeah so the the beatles and the ruddles therefore got their beginning in these covers and then they kind of moved on to their own sound right so maybe let's talk about some of the early sound like help or ouch (laughs) by the time help comes out the beatles are they already have their sound they're they're they've gone they've moved away from this idea of going covers um, one of the brilliant things is that George Martin, their producer, um, was listening to their tunes and said, well, you know, what have you got that's original? And they, they played Please Please Me. And he was like, okay, that's your, that's your, that's your first hit. And so they yeah. recorded Please Please Me in 63, and then, and then they were off and running. And then at that point, it was really, your tunes are better than the covers. Let's, let's do that. Ouch. Um, that's so brilliant. Ouch. Here, do you want to listen to Ouch? <laughs> yeah, let's listen to Ouch. 
Okay, so the great thing about that, that's really, that's, that's, so what's going on musically? So the, the first thing when you hear the... Ouch, you're breaking my heart. So, so the ouch has got a really particular harmonies, and so when they say ouch, the same thing is happening in terms of health, right? So there, if you listen to the original, because the yeah. idea is, okay, what Neil Innes does is he listens to the original really carefully, and he goes, okay, what are the essential elements about this? The first is, when you listen to help... Help, I need somebody... Not just anybody Help You know I need someone Help When I was younger So much younger than today Alright, so let's listen to just that opening. So the idea of this declamatory opening statement with the, with the harmonies. Help. And then there's the, the three descending notes. Ba, ba, beam, da, da. So each between each help. So that's what Ennis is listening to. He's going, okay, well, wait a second. How do I do this? I've got to do ouch, which is... I don't even. Be, I can't even begin to talk about how brilliant the lyrics are, because <laughs> it's just that's the Monty Python esque thing that I just can't get over. Um, but okay, so if you're looking at this, you think, okay, wait a second, we've got this big chord, so it's got to be a vocal chord with a with a with a with a real dynamic hit to it, and then there is these three notes that are descending, and then we do it again, and three notes descending, and then we sort of mess around with that the third time, and then we go into the body of the tune again. So that's exactly what happens with this. It, sounds it like, again uses that call and response. Right, but the interesting thing about that tune is that the call and response is the, 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 the response is finishing the thought of the lyric and finishing the melodic line, which is, which is different from just the, the he's saying. So when you listen to help, the, so the background vocals are setting up, I never needed anybody's help in any way. So, the, so it's not just a call and response, but they're like a Greek chorus. They're sort of filling in the blank of all this. And, and where is it placed? It's placed in the background, in the vocal background. Well, again, with these harmonies. So, and then they're filling it in. Okay, we've got acoustic guitar that's driving the rhythm in a lot of ways. And so that's, that's the brilliance of it. Let me distill what is going on here. We've got this hits, we've got the, the big vocals, we've got the, the three note descending line. We then mix it around with the, th with the third hit. And then we've got this vocal line, but then we've got this background vocals that are finishing up the thought as this sort of bizarre musical Greek chorus. It's, it's, a, it's, it, it, it's really like, what? <laughs> how, how do you do that? How do you listen to sort of the essential parts of it? So that's, that's I love that. Yeah, the the Beatles use the that harmony and that background mm -hmm. sound, mm -hmm. and I think that's something that, especially in their later music, they took those and adjusted them, and that's how they found their like later Beatles sound, especially like post Sgt. Pepper's. Yeah. So then when the Ruddles copy that and the effects that they use, I just think it's really interesting. Like, um, when when the the Ruddles take something like Cheese and Onions, which is A Day in the Life, and A Day in the Life is such an iconic right, Beatles right, song, right, right, huge. and everyone says, oh, there's nothing like it, right. but they made it to fit with the album the yellow submarine sandwich which is i mean and if you and what they did that was so brilliant was they went and found the original illustrators to of of yellow submarine and said okay we're going to goof now on this which is already a goofy cartoon thing to begin with so they, so when you watch those videos you realize okay well that they they are actually doing exactly the same thing that Neil Ennis is doing with the music, they're doing the same thing with the video, which is, we, oh, we've yeah. got this really similar, uh, literally similar designs and everything else, but we're making fun of them. The other thing about yeah, uh, uh, Cheese and Onions, it's two songs. So Cheese and Onions, if we listen to the beginning. Okay, so there's three things here. One is that opening. So that piano figure there goes dee da ba da da. The other thing is that when Lennon starts to sing, it's with this this heavy uh, reverb sound, all right? So the echoey sound that he's got. And Lennon started doing that in Day in Life. And then when he started doing his solo work, it was more and more and more like that. He just liked that sound. And I think it, it 
sort of he he liked the way his his vocals uh, um, sounded with with it with that. And you don't see a lot of that in the Beatles. They don't do that. Mm-hmm. But when Lennon gets into his solo work, he does that. So so that's the second thing. The third thing is that at the end of the first line, that ba ba ga dan dan on that little figure, that rhythmic figure that's played on the piano, that's the day in life. So that's actually that's the sort of iconic moment where you're realizing that you're listening to a day in life. So It's the first time we really started to hear Lennon um, doing that sort of echoey thing. But if we combine them with this song, we realize what Neil Ennis is up to. Or at least I have also related, especially that just the sound of the piano sounds yeah. a lot like Hey Jude, which is another really big right. Beatles song. Right, so exactly. it's taking those elements from different songs right, that I like right. the best. And how do the be- and somehow what what it's, Hey Jude is exactly the same thing. How do you take a really simple piano figure like that and make it sound um, uh, important? You know, <laughs> which is really kind of funny. It, somehow it sounds really. Um, uh, immediately sort of iconic in some ways, but it just sounds like it has a great, great gravity to it. And it's just a triad, you know, alternating with a single note. But somehow we give it, 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 it takes on this whole other importance. Oh, it's yeah. very, very strange. Um, the other tune that does that is, uh, is Double Back Alley. Double Back Alley. <laughs> I love Double Back Alley. <laughs> I think it just takes, it's just in the middle of the record, the beginning of uh-huh. the second side um, and the end of the first side of, a magical mystery tour then they combine it for a double back alley on the tragical history tour i love it's <laughs> like your mother should know and penny lane and bits of strawberry fields as well right, right. which i think strawberry fields is more complex but you tend to group it in with penny lane so this goes back to the idea when you asked me originally what is it that makes the beatles sound iconic one of the things that they did um and and something to to, to keep in mind is what you've got with the Beatles that's so that's that's really um, unique and unique to them, and I don't think we'll ever see that kind of thing again. It's sort of a perfect convergence of sort of historical um, uh, phenomenon in a lot of ways that are that are that are combining musical and societal and just this sort of personal chemistry that takes place. It's just everything sort of comes together at, at a very particular time. What's unusual about the Beatles is that they also have um, an incredibly eclectic appetite for musical styles. You know, particularly um, Lennon and McCartney. McCartney's listening to a lot of different avant-garde things. Lennon gets uh, exactly the same thing, particularly through Yoko Ono. So he's listening to a lot to John Cage, the uh, avant-garde American composer. Mm-hmm. So what happens is th- those odd vocabularies, so the contemporary odd, you know, avant-garde music that's happening on the fringes of certainly not remotely connected to popular music in any way, start to become part of that. So th- what makes it unique is that you've got the most popular group in the world. Okay, so they are by far the most popular group in the entire world is in fact the most experimental at the same time in terms of just popular groups. That's a very strange combination. So to sort of imagine the weirdest group you can think of now becoming the most popular group, and by popular group, we're, we, we don't we don't really realize just how popular the Beatles were. Um, their first big hit is in you know in '63 in the states, um, and by by February '64 they play Ed Sullivan, and that's the first time they're 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 playing in the states. By April of '64, they're the top five songs. On the, on the charts. And at the time, the radio charts were super, super important. So the top five songs, most popular five songs, are all Beatles songs. All of them. Top five. Which is unheard of. And, and, and one of them is a cover, and the other four are original. She Loves You, uh, Can't Buy Me Love, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Um, I can't remember the other one. Uh, Twist and Shout that was, is one of the tunes. Mm-hmm. That's, and, um, and these tunes are, um, are in the top five. Here's another really weird thing in terms of just popularity. 
by the second third, I believe, of a uh, fiscal year of in 64, 60% of all worldwide record sales. So 60% of records sold in the entire world are Beatles records. <laughs> <laughs> That's, it's not like 60% in English speaking countries or in the US or we're talking in the entire world. Okay, let's take over half of the you know the, the records sold are Beatles records. So what that means is that the influence is going to be astonishingly pervasive, not just the musical influence, but the economic influence, and, and how everything starts to starts to, to to evolve out of that weird phenomenon. So so what that then translates into musically, because we're we're going back to the idea of double back alley. Um, the what that translates into is whatever the Beatles produce is rock music. So while, you know, while When I'm 64 is a British music hall, almost Tin Pan Alley type of song, that has nothing to do with, with rock music, but the Beatles do. So now it's a viable vocabulary in rock music. If we listen to um, like this, okay, so Tomorrow Never Knows. That's 1966, so that's three years after Please Please Me. I was two years after Ed Sullivan. So what are we listening to? We're listening to uh, sitar, uh, because of George Harrison's interest in Indian music, so it's a, it's a classical um, Indian uh, stringed instrument that nobody had ever heard, in the, I mean, very few people knew of, and now it's just sort of a common thing. Um, we're listening to the idea of that, that strange sound that you hear is um, literally reel-to-reel -reel tapes being played backwards. So if you record something and then you turn the tapes around, it, it, the, the attack and the decay of the sound completely changes, and that's what the sound you hear. So they do a whole um, a string solo with uh, backwards. Hendrix picks up on that and starts doing that with his music. So you think, okay, well, how can Jimi Hendrix be influenced by the Beatles? Of course he was. Everybody was. So now we've got the idea of, a, of an instrument nobody ever heard of now becomes something that everybody starts using. Um, the idea of using uh, backwards tapes, which is an avant-garde, you know, classical music technique from the 50s, is now, that's now part of the rock vocabulary, whatever the Beatles do. When you listen to Eleanor Rigby, you're thinking, well, how, you know, how is this, how is this rock and roll? I mean, how many rock songs have a string quartet? The, and at, up to that point, they didn't. And so somehow, you know, George Martin does the arrangement of that. And so he, who is brilliant about this, but he does the arrangement of, 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 this, of this quartet. And it's, I think it's actually technically an octet. Um, but the idea of all strings, no guitars, no, no bass, no drums, but it's the Beatles. And everybody's, okay, well, that, that, that's, nobody's thinking, oh, that's classical music. Whatever the Beatles produce is rock music. So rock and roll is, is, is completely reborn as rock music. And this goes back to Chris Gow's, um idea that, that rock music is, is, is primarily, th that music that is primarily influenced by the energy, uh, the energy and, and influence of the Beatles. So, which is, I mean, we, we just, we'll, keep we'll keep coming back to that. So, okay, why are we talking about that? Because when we listen to what are the essential elements of, of, um, uh, uh, of Double Back Alley? What makes Double Back Alley so interesting? One of the things that it's, it's, so we listen to it for a moment, is identical, right, to, to, to Penny Lane. So, so in the middle of the tune, we've got not a guitar solo or not a saxophone solo, which we would have gotten from, right, from rock and roll. What we've got is a, um, 
a trumpet solo, but not just a trumpet solo. What we're listening to is a, 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 what's known as a piccolo trumpet or a baroque trumpet. So, um, uh, so this is an instrument that that is really you know comes from the 18th century. Uh, so sort of think of it as like a really tiny little trumpet and incredibly in play and the sound of it is up in the stratosphere. It's a really high instrument, sort of like a soprano trumpet. Um, and that is the solo that takes place in Penny Lane. So Neil Innes, as, as, as the Ruddles, takes that instrument and says, okay, we're gonna, that's how we duplicate it. We, make, we do this really strange little solo, and this is the uh, odd little Baroque trumpet solo. <laughs> So the to idea, lead you into a key change. To lead you into a key change. Thank you for mentioning that. That's one of my favorite modulations ever. So, because it's this odd inverse. Um, so, by modulation, that, that's the word for, for when you change one key to the next. But the other thing is that the trumpet goes up until it hits this high note. So, where does that come from? This is what makes the Beatles interesting. So, Paul McCartney is watching BBC one night, and he's watching a broadcast of, I guess it was BBC Orchestra, it was some, some group, doing um, Johann Sebastian Bach, um, uh, the second Brandenburg Concerto. Okay, so now we're talking about a piece that's written in the early 1700s, and it's a piece that's written for, um, the, basically to show off the, the, the skills of, of these two trumpet players. So, um, or actually one, um, but the, uh, uh, and it sounds like this. Okay, so it's a very famous piece, and um, and, and <laughs> in, in the world of classical, okay, right. So McCartney hears that, goes back into the studio the next day, and asks George Martin. He says, "What was that thing? You know, that's a really cool sound." And so he's in the middle of writing Penny Lane, and Martin says, "Okay, well, let's just call that guy up because it's the Beatles, and we'll have him come into the studio. Let me sketch this out, and you and I will work out a solo, and we'll have that instrument as the solo." Naturally. Naturally. So, <laughs> so now we've got this Baroque trumpet as the solo instrument. How is that rock and roll music? Nobody even blinks. You know, everybody goes, no. of course. It's like, yeah, how cool is that? And that's, there, that's how everything starts to change. And so when you think about the idea of, you know, because if I play that tune, you know, if I play the, this... Nobody says that's rock and roll, but if we play this, that's like, of course, it's rock music. Yeah, because I think some of that, it's an iconic Beatles sound, right. and that's what makes it rock music, rather right. than the Beatles having to do rock. Right, exactly. And so that's and that's the flip. I mean, and and everything else comes out of it. So if you've got a band that's experimenting with electronica, that comes from that. You can track that back to the Beatles. If you've got a band that never tours, but they're just in the studio, and the studio becomes their instrument, that goes back to the Beatles. Because after the Beatles stopped touring, they were like, no, we just want to spend time in the studio, and we're going we're gonna to put together something like Sgt. Pepper's, which was unheard of. And the idea, uh, now we're also talking about the idea of sort of concept albums. So we're looking at the idea of an album as document, the album as art itself. And so that's completely different. And, and weirdly, the Ruddles are picking up on that, too. But they're not weird. I mean, they understand exactly what's going on. One of the things about the Ruddles that's important is that George Harrison you know, was a huge fan of Monty Python and in some ways felt that Monty Python was um, the sort of spiritual um, uh, inheritors of the Beatles. Because when, the the when the Beatles split up, you know, Monty Python came into the forefront and started happening. So in a lot of ways, and he funded a couple of their movies. I mean, I mean yeah, he them. was in both... Um, all you need is cash and, and can't buy me lunch. Right, and, and can't buy me lunch. And and so when and also when Monty Python went to do Life of Brian, they wouldn't they couldn't get financial support for it because everybody thought that's just too risky. And so you know Harrison said no, I'll I'll, I'll bankroll this. Yeah. And so he was he was also on that part of it. Um, can't buy. <laughs> so let's listen to Double Back Alley again. People were proud in Double Back Alley. 
what's the essential element of this? The essential element is okay. We're gonna we've got we've got this steady beat, uh, and we're gonna play you know chords on the on the piano, or guitar, or both, uh, emphasizing every single beat. <laughs> and so he's going, okay. We got to do that. Then we've got this vocal line that moves around with that, and then eventually goes up to introduce. Um, one of the things that's really interesting is that the um, the really primary influence on the Be- on the Beatles, the contemporary influence, um, is is Bob Dylan, and Harrison talks a lot about that. And where basically they just listened to Dylan's second album nonstop when it came out, and so what ends up happening is when they're listening to that, they start to realize, wait a second, the lyrical content can be about something else, can be about how I feel about something. It can actually be just reflecting on my life. So in a lot of ways. So when you listen to, you know, Dylan, you listen to something like Positively Fourth Street, where basically there's no chorus and it's just him getting angrier and angrier and angrier at somebody who's done him wrong. And it's really super personal. You would never hear that in a pop song. Um, but that completely changes because the Beatles listen to Dylan and like everything else, they go, yeah, I, we'll just take this. And we'll, we're just going to take this lyrical content. We're going to make it our own. And then because we're the biggest thing in the world in music, it'll become part of the vocabulary of rock music. And so the idea of, you know, so when we think about, um, you know, confessional singer-songwriter, that's really, uh, that, that comes out of the uh, Beatles. You've got to hide your love away. You know, suddenly it's, that's, okay, it's a love song, but it's a really sort of painful love song in a lot of ways. And it's very, very different from even the sort of Patsy Cline you know, painful love songs of sort of country western. It's much more related to the sort of incredibly personal um, reflection that you get via Bob Dylan. You know, and so that becomes what what that that whole element of that becomes uh, a whole different genre of rock music. And what the Beatles do is they give voice to each individual of those genres. So if you listen to like one of their albums, there are about six different things taking place. Oh, this is kind of a weird psychedelic. This is like distortion, like revolution or, or tax man or something like that. And you go, okay, well, that's a, there's all kinds of weird distortion, you know, proto metal thing happening in here. Community, you know, um, uh, like Helter Skelter, as I said, um, or revolution, you know, that, that tune. Um, at the same time, you can listen to a tune like Yesterday. You know, just guitar and perfect song. You know, just but the ultimate sort of popish thing. Or Eleanor Rigby. So now we've got string quartet. Or um, Walrus, where you've got those heavy electronic weird distortion for the last minute and a half. It's nothing but like radio static and weird things going on in the in the in the in the string section. And you think, well, how if I just played that for a room full of people and said, oh, is this rock and roll? They hear drums in the background, so I guess, but everybody's like, well, no, it's the Beatles, of course it's rock music. No, it's like, it's 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 electronica that's now become part, like by electronic, I mean electronic music, not what we refer to as electronica now as dance music, but it becomes part of that, part of that vocabulary. So all that changes, and going back to the idea of the confessional singer-songwriter, I mean, you know, James Taylor in 1970, 72 Sweet Baby James becomes this thing, you know, so everybody's everybody with a guitar starts talking about and singing sad songs about themselves. Weirdly, D- Taylor was signed, his first, you know, solo, he was signed to the Beatles' Apple Records. They recognize, oh yeah, this is, this is a thing, you know, <laughs> so yeah, we, we really like this, but you can find the roots of that in in the Beatles. So yeah, so when you talk about the sort of the nostalgic element of it, that incredibly personal um, reflection becomes something that everybody relates to. Like, why does everybody relate to that? I mean, that's your life, but now it's like, oh yeah, I feel that way too. Oh, that can, I know what that's about. And so it becomes, and with the Beatles, these, these incredibly clever stories too. So they become so popular and they're such unique individuals that in some ways they are instigators of popular culture, not reflections. Mm-hmm. So the idea of wearing your hair long, that wasn't a thing. They just start to do that, and everyone copies it. I mean, everyone copies it. John Lennon picks up a pair of granny glasses sort of just by accident. Everybody has to wear those granny glasses. <laughs> um, you know, So everything that they did be- becomes uh, something that people – it wasn't just a group of people. It wasn't like, okay, we're listening to heavy metal music and so now we're goth or whatever. You know, Now we're going to dress this way. Now we're gonna, we've got these long black coats or whatever and this sort of makeup. And there's like 5% of people that are doing that within this particular group of, 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 of teenagers. We're talking about a huge 
a number of people changing that. And so you can see where the hairstyles changed from 1963 in, in, in the United States. And by 1970, everybody's dressing really differently. And they're, they're literally the way, the, the, particularly men are wearing their hair, is, is completely different. But you can trace it back to the Beatles showing up and doing that. And yeah. they're going, you know, uh, um, and where did that come from? It came from a friend of theirs saying, why don't you stop greasing your hair back and maybe just do this? And so, you know, they did that with, with Stu Sutcliffe, their, their first uh, bass player. And, then, and the other Beatles made fun of them. And then they thought, well, it looks kind of cool. Maybe we'll do that, too. And then by the time it, it, they go back to, to, to Liverpool, everybody's like, that's a cool look. They become instigators, mm-hmm. which is really, really unusual. Um, so, for example, one of the, going back to your question about the Ruddles, um, I, I was laughing so hard because of the cover of um, yesterday and today. And so that's a, 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 one of the Beatles albums from 1965. Um, the Beatles at that point knew they could get away with pretty much everything. And this is one of those things where they didn't quite get away with it. So for the cover of that album, they posed because they, they were just being, because they're, they're, they're smart alecks in a lot of ways. These guys are in their early 20s. They're also just a bunch of smart alecky guys. Um, they, they, for the album cover, they pose in butchers, white butchers smocks, right? And they've got all this sort of like literally chunks of meat and bones like on their laps and stuff. And at the same time, these old baby uh, dolls, right? These large, really creepy baby dolls. And they're smiling. And so the whole picture is kind of creepy, but funny <laughs> from our point of view. When the, when the album comes out, the record executives, particularly in the United States, are like, we, no, we can't. This is... What happened to our wholesome Beatles look? We can't have this, um, and so they 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 changed the record, um, the album cover, and they they put them all back in their little outfits, and they put them next to a, a, a suitcase, a big, and, and that that becomes you know yesterday and today. Um, so the Ruddles do that, but they do the first one. They do that first iconic cover. So they're they're making fun of this sort of uh, you know odd avant-garde cover. But the name of the album, which is Yesterday and Today, with the Ruddles becomes uh, Yesterday's Leftovers. And I, I couldn't, I could, actually, I couldn't believe it because I'd never seen that until the, until the other day when, you know, you and I were talking about doing this. I just, I started laughing so hard. I thought, this is so brilliant because yeah. they are, in fact, making fun of them. And at the same time, you know, referencing all these weird things that they're doing. So in some ways, it, it's it, it's really apparent in just the, and also just in the way they make the documentary. So it's two oh, things that are happening. Yeah. I love the, um, the Ruddles when they are caught for drinking tea. Yeah. <laughs> and I like especially the way that they um, poke fun at the controversies of the Beatles, whether it be... They're drinking tea, the tight pants, uh, the, um, the, the insulting Rod Stewart. That's brilliant. The, and the, the whole Jesus thing, right? It's like yeah. we're, we're more popular than Jesus is the comment that, yeah. that Lennon makes. And it, it actually broke his heart because he wasn't saying, you know, he goes on to say, no, that's you missed my point. My right. point is that the young people's involvement with religion, you know, uh, and so. But and then, yeah, and then, of course, it's I think it's Dirk McQuickly. <laughs> says they're bigger than God, but actually the reporter was hard of hearing and he was just insulting Rod Stewart. <laughs> That's, I mean, it takes a, that, it takes a really twisted um, sense of, of, of humor and satire to be able to pull that off. And so what I think that so marvelous about the Royals, I think also what you pick up on is it's such a complete package. Not only are we going to brilliantly do this to the music, um, not only, but we're going to honestly we're going to we're going to fake a, we're going to make one of the first if not the first really excellent mockumentaries you know sort of so this really predates Spinal Tap like some some doing um, that's really solid in terms of their their uh, presentation and we're going to do little things like the album covers so when you look at it you can't even tell when I looked at a tragical tragical mystery tour as opposed tragical to tragical history tour yeah. tragical history see I can't even I can't even remember that I looked at I didn't even see it. You know, I didn't, and then I started yeah. looking at the names of the tunes. So, yeah. you know, so it's a... It's a, a or, um, I like Let It Rot. <laughs> I had to zoom in on that. <laughs> and, Le- I mean, and Lennon himself said when they did, uh, uh, it's, it's Get Back. What's the tune that they do instead of Get Back? 
get up, get up get, and go. Get up and go. Thank you. <laughs> get up and go. So he plays get up it. And go back home. It's great because they play it for Lennon, who says, "Oh, that's so close. You're going to be careful because the publishers can sue you." And so part of the thing that we, we haven't discussed is, is is how close can you get in satire, you know, without um, plagiarizing. And so they, I mean, that pretty much crosses the line. And if they really had wanted to go after them, they probably could have. Where all these other things, are, they're small snippets. But part of the genius of Neil Innes is that he combines these different songs. So it's like, you can't quite catch me on this. That's the other thing that happens. So in Ouch, I mean, because the thing is that when you listen to Ouch. Ouch, you're breaking my heart. Ouch, I'm falling apart. Ouch, ouch. Okay, when we first met, I fell from you right from the start. Okay, so the vocal line <clears throat> is what's known as syllabic singing. So every every note has its own syllable, as opposed to even even help. I mean, the opening. You, if you listen to the opening again, you'll hear. Ouch, you're breaking my heart. Heart. So that word now has three notes to it. That's not what happens when he starts singing the, the first verse. And it identifies that. So when you listen to the tune, Help. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Help. When, when I was younger, so much younger than today. Except today, he changes it there. But the idea is, I'm gonna when I was younger, but da 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 today, and then that one word da da, I never needed anybody. So it's every single syllable has its own note. Mm -hmm. So it's not this multiple thing that takes place. And then it identifies that. I started cracking up when I heard that. I thought, oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> he immediately identified it. I don't know. I think that's that's pretty all encompassing. The Beatles, they have a distinct sound it influenced everything and it draws influence from everything exactly yeah it's a sort of and i think that there are um you know one of the things i i say in my class is that if you think of individuals that change um the the direction of any given field you know so um and i'll ask students okay so think about you know, not in music necessarily i mean in music we can we look at the um, you know, Johann Sebastian Bach, for example, who, who's, who's like the Beatles in the sense that he's encyclopedic in, in all the formal structures and everything that had happened up to that point. But he then gives voice to everything else, including even the tuning system that takes place. And so after Bach, everybody has to acknowledge what takes place in that way. Um, the same thing is true of, of Beethoven, you know, where he changes the whole idea of, of sort of personal expression and how that's done. Um, the same thing is true of, of, of Wagner, for example, and opera, and the idea of approaching opera as sort of a total artwork. In a lot of ways, it was sort of the movies of its time. Um, Stravinsky, the same sort of a th idea. Um, so, so what ends up happening in music, you've got these individuals. Um, what happens um, when we look at other fields that way? We're some, we're, we're for whatever reason, there is this individual who goes, yeah, it's... I have an idea. Look, it's this. So you know. So you know, Einstein. You know, in, in 1905, is sitting in in, in in Switzerland, and he's a sort of obscure patents, you know, guy uh, working in a, in a patents office. But he comes up with a way to sort of completely rethink um, how we uh, consider time and space. And after Einstein, everything's everything changes. You know, and so you go sort of Newtonian physics, and then suddenly, in like two centuries later, or a century later, whatever it is, you know, you've got Einstein, or you know, or even the idea of of Freud. Well, you know, we've we've moved on from there, of course, but the idea of you know subconscious motivation, we don't even think about that idea. Of course, there is subconscious motivation. That wasn't a thing in the early part of the 19th century. What happens when these ideas are brought to the forefront, and then they completely change how we. Um, how things happen after that. And you can never sort of go back. It's like the genie's out of the bottle. And the Beatles take all that information, all those different musical styles, incorporate them, as I said before, sort of incredibly seamlessly, which is unique to them, and create an individual sound, and then give voice to all these individual genres that, that follow that up. 
So when you listen to Helter Skelter, you realize, well, that sounds like a really hard rock tune. But at the same time, they're doing, you know, Yesterday or Eleanor Rigby or Julia or Back in the USSR or, um, you know, weird stuff like Glass Onion or Get Back or, yeah, right? So all these different styles that happen simultaneously. Really quite, quite odd. And the genius of Neil Innes and the Ruddles is, he just he's got such great ears because he'll go oh, what if i take this one song and i'm going to take this one bizarre effect so if i listen to um you know ticket to ride right the drums right dot yeah, this weird sitting back on those drums. So what? So Innes hears that and goes, "Well, what if I what if I do that?" I feel good. So I've got this weird little electric guitar thing, and I'm going to do the, the, which is exactly what happens in Ticket to Ride. Weird little arpeggiated figure, right? The ooh la la la. We take that for granted. Every pop song would have an ooh la 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 in the background, but that really is not true. Where do you really hear that in the Beatles? If you listen to a tune called You Won't See Me. When I call you up, your line's engaged. I have had enough, so at your age, we have lost the time that was so. We hear the background vocal even in the first verse in our in our imagination, right? I saw you yeah. like always starting to mouth it, right? So if we go to the second verse, that's the first time we start hearing the ooh la la la's. That's one of my favorite songs because of that weird little bridge. They take that vocal line and the vocal line and the background vocal line and the harmonies become the vehicle to get us to the new verse. And then the ooh-la-las come in. And I would wage some serious money that that's what Ennis heard and said, okay, let's take those ooh-la-las, let's take the weird drums and the uh, pattern, the, the syncopations, and then the arpeggiated guitar, and we're going to combine them. And then he does something else which is gonna make it sound like early weird Beatles with again, with this sort of syllabic singing at the same time. It's, un, it's, it's I, I can't think anybody that else has, has ever done that in, in, in to quite such success. It's really interesting, so cool. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure, great fun. I, I, I've just been listening to this stuff for the last couple of days, laughing and laughing and laughing. I loved the album covers. The Beatles shaped the sound of popular music. They were influenced by many sounds and redefined the way that popular music is made. Sadly, Neil Innes passed away shortly after this podcast was recorded. I would personally like to recognize and thank Mr. Innes for his work. It never ceases to make me smile. The theme music of this podcast was written and recorded by Quick Nibby. Thank you to Andre Grabu for allowing me to interview him. And thank you for listening to the AHS Matrix podcast. <laughs>